Well, good afternoon, everyone. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of Risen Hope Church and beyond, we are grateful that you are a part of our worship experience this afternoon. And we are hoping and praying that in the midst of all that's going on, uh, the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ is resting on each one of our lives. My name is Tim Shorey, for those who don't know, and it's my privilege this afternoon to open up God's Word. And so I invite you to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Matthew, we arrive at these well-known but deeply profound and deeply moving and affecting words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Here our Lord speaks, and he speaks of himself as the Son of Man. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, saying, answer them, saying, truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. O Lord, we have sung this afternoon, unless you build 
the house we labor in vain who build it. That all glory goes to Christ Jesus our Lord, that nothing that is accomplished in this life is ultimately our accomplishment. It is only that which is done by your grace and by your power. And so, Lord, as we come to this message, as we come to this sermon, this labor in and for this house, Risen Hope Church, Lord, I recognize that if anything good is to come of this, you must make it happen. Lord, please build your house. Please, Lord, come and speak to us. And if there, there are any among us who are wandering in faith or wandering in obedience and righteousness, Lord, bring them back. And if there are any among us who have never really begun the journey of faith or righteousness, Lord, please bring them to Yourself. Do what only Your power can do in each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week when we began our study of this text, we summarized it by saying that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming to decide our destiny. He is coming to decide our destiny, and what we are doing now will prove where we will be going then. We learned last week that good works are going to matter on Judgment Day for they are going to be the final and the ultimate test of whether our faith was genuine. Good works are to the believer what breathing, a pulse, a heart rate are to a newborn child. They are not meritorious efforts to earn life, but they are sure and certain vital signs that prove that life already exists. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the balance there is exactly what we need to understand when it comes to these things. You perhaps know the text well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For... We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is a true faith life. We need to see the divine order here. We are not saved by or as a result of good works, but we are saved for or to result in good works. For we who truly believe are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for that very purpose. Whoever has been truly born again by the power of the Spirit of God and made a new creation in Christ has been given a faith life and the vital signs of that life will be good works manifested in our lives. And so the question for us here and now in this hour is how strong are our faith's vital signs? Are our vital signs strong? Are we in fact evidencing that we are alive 
in Christ and that our faith is a living and dynamic faith. Jesus will, on that final day, bring that all to light on Judgment Day. It's how we have lived that will, that will prove or disprove the genuineness of our faith. These are sobering things. These are humbling things. These are truths that should make us ponder, should make us think, should make us run back to Christ with earnest faith and sincere devotion. Now, I want us to come back to this text this afternoon because I think it answers three really important questions for our faith life or our life of faith. Those three questions are, what do Jesus' words here say about what he expects from us? And then, what do Jesus' words say about how he relates to us? And then third, what do Jesus' words say about what is ahead of us? So let's ask and answer, God helping us, those three questions this afternoon. Question number one, what do Jesus' words say about what he expects from us. Well, it's important to notice that Jesus expects us to be righteous. In verse 37 and in verse 46, he describes those that are on his right hand, the sheep, he describes those as the righteous. And then he defines what righteousness is in this text, as we're going to see in just a moment. Righteousness and its closely connected virtue of justice are, are coupled and commanded over and over in Scripture. You will know some of these texts. Amos chapter 5, verses 11 and following. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silence in such a time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or in Psalm 112 and verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Or Job 29, Job says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. 
I was father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Or Psalm 72, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Do you see time and again justice and righteousness are pulled together to be just is to think and judge with in a way that is due to give honor, to give respect, to give reward to whom it is due. To be righteous is to live that out in heart, in mind, in body, in soul, conforming everything to what is right. Righteousness in Scripture actually has three dimensions to it or three spheres to it. There's a, there's a vertical dimension to it. Giving to God what is His due is a part of righteousness. Doing what is right in relationship with God. Becoming people who worship Him and love Him and are devoted to Him and pray to Him and are committed to Him and, and sing about Him and praise Him and bear testimony of Him everywhere and adore Him and and confess our sins to Him. There's this vertical righteousness. Then there's an internal righteousness, trying to think rightly and be righteous as people of integrity and purity and honor and faithfulness, people of contentment and self-control and patience and joy and peace and internal righteousness. And then there is a horizontal righteousness, giving to others what is their due and doing what is right in relationship with them. There is Godward righteousness, there is inward righteousness, and there is outward Righteousness, And my, my observation as a pastor for all of these years is that some of us tend to focus on one or the other when God is calling us to all of them. Some of us tend to focus on vertical righteousness. We want to make sure that we're doing all the right things toward God. Some tend to focus on internal righteousness. They want to be righteous. They want their character, their integrity, their purity to be as it ought to. To be. And then there are some who fo- focus on horizontal righteousness, doing right in this direction, doing right outwardly. So there's the upward, there's the inward, and there's the outward, and all of it is a part of righteousness. And in fact, if we are truly born again, we will make a commitment to all the aspects of righteousness. Jesus expects that of us. But we should notice in this text, that Jesus focuses on the third. He doesn't focus on the vertical. He doesn't focus so much on the inward, the internal, but he focuses on the horizontal, the outward. Jesus says here in Matthew 25 that one of the tests he's going to use on Judgment Day to discern the authenticity of our faith is whether or not we practiced horizontal righteousness. 
Jesus focuses on the horizontal, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, going to see and spend time with the prisoner. Righteousness is concerned about these things. Righteousness is concerned about these people. Righteousness cannot turn a blind eye or an indifferent heart away from the hungry or away from the thirsty or away from the stranger that needs to be taken in or the naked that needs to be clothed or the sick or the imprisoned that need to be visited. Righteousness has a horizontal dimension to it to which Jesus calls us here with emphasis. I find it instructive. I find it affecting. When you study the text of Scripture, when God pauses, as it were, to to tell us what's really important, how many times what He talks about is horizontal righteousness. So you have Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. That's horizontal righteousness. To love kindness. Horizontal righteousness. And to walk humbly with your God. That's vertical righteousness. Or you have Isaiah 1 where the prophet brings to the people of Israel a clarifying word from God. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. As God wants to reason with His people and draw them into the things that really matter, it is matters of horizontal righteousness that He calls their attention to. Or you have James chapter 1 and verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Do you, do you want to know what pure religion is? Do you, do you want to know what undefiled religion is? Do you, do you want to know what God says is, is religion in its purest form? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unstained from the world. He starts with horizontal righteousness. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then internal righteousness. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Or there's James chapter 2, verses 15 and through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is the proof, the vital sign of living faith? It is meeting the needs of others. Or 1 John 3, 16 through 18, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what is the proof? What is the vital sign of authentic love for God? It is love for our brothers and our sisters in Christ who are in need. So all of us are called to a righteous life, vertically in relationship with God, internally, in terms of character and heart, and then horizontally in relationship with others. And, and I don't think that what Jesus means here in Matthew 25 is that somehow or other we are all to go out and start some kind of, of crusade or some kind of this or that. I think what he's saying here is this is the kind of life you're called to live. If you love me, if you trust me, if you, if you really believe in me, you will live a faith life of love and kindness and mercy and righteousness. This is what Jesus expects of us. He expects us. He expects us to live horizontal, outward, righteous lives toward one another in the family of God. He expects us to be in tune spiritually and emotionally and relationally in tune with the least among us and to notice and to respond to their needs. He expects us to be in touch with those in need and to do all we can to our fellow believers for them in their need. If they are hungry, feed them. If they are naked, clothe them. If they are sick, visit them. Horizontal righteousness, a vital sign of true faith in Christ. True community life in the body of Christ is not primarily about Sunday worship. It's not primarily about hanging out with others like us. True community life in righteousness involves loving and welcoming and serving those who are the least among us. Jesus' words say much about what he expects from us. Now, secondly, what do Jesus' words say about how he relates to us? What do his words say about how he relates to us? Well, what, is, what does Jesus say to the sheep? He says, if you do these things, these acts of horizontal righteousness to the least of these my brothers what you've done it you have done them to me and if you do not do these acts of horizontal righteousness to the least of these my brothers you have not done them to me Jesus relates to us as his brothers and sisters, to you and me as genuine believers. He relates to us 
so closely, so intimately, so tightly, so personally, that when a deed of kindness is done to us, Jesus says it was done to him. And when we treat others with horizontal righteousness and love, when we treat one another in this way, it is as if we are doing it to Jesus himself. He relates to us that closely. Oh, what wonderful encouragement there is here. What, what a wonderful statement of how Jesus views us. This, this gets to the Bible teaching about union with Christ, how, how by faith in Christ we are joined to Him, we are one with Him, we are in Christ, that in Christ, Ephesians 1, we have all spiritual blessings. We are blessed beyond measure. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. There is this union so that, so that everything He has, we have in Him, and everything we do for one another, for each one who is also in Christ, everything we do for one another who is in Christ, we do to Christ. He relates to us with this bond of unity and love. We are in union with Him. Here is our first security and our first identity. If we are shaken up by all that's going on around us, let us at least secure our hearts in this. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. There is union with Him. I, I find in this teaching, this truth, both motivation for generosity and some comfort for us in the, in the midst of our vulnerability, there's, there's motivation for generosity. If I want to serve Jesus, well, I can serve you. And in serving you, I'm serving Him. If I, if I had longed, if I longed to have the opportunity to feed Jesus, to welcome Jesus into my home, to love Him, to serve Him. Well, Jesus says, do those things for the least of these, my brothers, and you've done it to me. You've had me in your home. You've visited me. You have fed me. You have clothed me. You have cared for me, Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brothers and my sisters. Oh, what tremendous motivation for us as the children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us serve each other well and humbly. Let us practice horizontal righteousness with diligence and passion for inasmuch as we have done it to each other, we have done it to Christ. There is also great comfort in this truth. There is great comfort for I am convinced and have long said this and am convinced of this more and more. The day is fast approaching in which all who proclaim Christ and all who love Christ and all who live for Christ and all who have a courageous voice in their generation will be persecuted. We will be hated. We will be turned aside. 
If we obey the law of Christ, we will be mocked. If we proclaim the law of Christ, we will be hated. Make it Make his business your business and people will laugh at you for wasting your life. And make his business their business by proclaiming the truth and they will hate you for interfering with their life. Faithfulness to Christ comes at a cost. All who will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But you ask me, well, what does that have to do with this text? Just this, that Jesus so identifies with us that when others neglect us or persecute us or hate us or fail to give food to us or needs to us, Jesus takes it personally. You remember what happened with Saul before he became Paul. He's in Acts chapter 9. Saul is the persecutor of the church. He is the one who is literally hunting down believers so that he can imprison them and he can kill some of them. And he's on the way to Damascus Road to Damascus to gather up more Christians to persecute. And right in the middle of that road in noonday sunlight, God or the Lord Jesus opened the heavens and shined down on Saul and said what? Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Saul could have said, what do, you, what do you mean, Jesus? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people who follow you. But Jesus is saying, inasmuch as you have done it unto these my brothers, inasmuch as you have persecuted them, you have persecuted me. Jesus identifies with us in our sorrows, in our sufferings, in our hardship, and He will identify with us in our persecution. He is there with us in it all. That's what Jesus' words say about how He relates to us. He is in union with us. We are in union with Him so that where we are, He is. So what we are experiencing, He is experiencing. And so that... We have the astonishing privilege of serving Jesus by serving each other. Question number three, what do Jesus' words say about what is ahead of us? What do Jesus' words say about what is ahead of us? Verse 46, these that is, the unrighteous, those who did not give Jesus a cup of water, food, visit, an open door, an open home. These, the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous those who have practiced horizontal, loving righteousness toward others, they will go away into what? Eternal life. Jesus' words here say much to us about our future, what is ahead of us. 
Something eternal is ahead of all of us. Something unending. Something that will go beyond the reach of all time. Either eternal life or eternal punishment. Let us tremble as we think about the second of those. The unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment. If you're listening this afternoon and you have, do not have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is bearing the fruit of vertical and internal and horizontal righteousness, if you don't have a living faith in Jesus Christ, you will on that day be banished. Depart from me, Jesus says earlier, and you will be consigned to eternal punishment. This is not the first time Jesus has talked about judgment and hell. In fact, in the 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel, there are at least 30 times that Jesus speaks of hell and judgment to come, which means that King Jesus means it, and he means for us to believe it and to live in the light of it. King Jesus has spoken over and over and over again, declaring the reality of judgment to come, declaring the reality of punishment to come. This is a punishment. The word used by our Lord speaks of discomfort and punishment. It's not eternal annihilation. It's not an eternal loss of consciousness. No, it is punishment. That means there's sorrow to it. There's pain to it. There's unpleasantness to it. This eternal punishment, however, is measured and proportionate. So very important. So many people struggle with the biblical doctrine of hell because they have in their minds an idea that, that somehow God is just going to take everybody without discriminating, without proportion, and just throw everybody into a lake of fire, and that's the end of it. But the Scriptures are very clear that each one is going to be judged on the basis of what he or she has done, and each one is going to be judged differently. For some, in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus says there will be some for whom judgment day will be more tolerable than for others. There are degrees of punishment in the wrath to come. Nevertheless, it is punishment, but it will be measured, it will be proportionate, and it will be based on opportunity and willfulness. People will get exactly what they deserve based on opportunity and truth they have received. Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 12 in a very critical text when understanding these things. Luke 12, 47 and 48. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light 
beating everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus is teaching here that our judgment will be based on what we know, the opportunities that we had. In other words, King Jesus, the judge of all the earth, will do right. He will never do anything unjust. No one will ever get worse than they deserve, but many will get what they deserve. This is the word of the Lord. This is the truth. There are people who object to the biblical doctrine of hell, and quite honestly, I don't understand why. I understand why we grieve it. I understand why it breaks our hearts to think about. But we should never, there's no moral or rational reason to object to the doctrine of hell. Hell is simply that place where God will proportion out to every human being who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ exactly what is due. No more and no less. He will be fair, but it will be eternal punishment. Maybe at the end of the day, what many of us are afraid of is fair. Maybe we don't want fair. Maybe we have enough consciousness of our own hearts and our own guilt to realize that if we get what is fair, then we are in serious trouble on that day. If we get what we deserve, uh, but I want you to hear this. If you're in hearing distance of my voice right now, um, hear this warning and take it seriously. If, if you do not believe with an authentic, life-transforming, righteousness-doing faith, you will be judged and you will be punished by King Jesus on that day. All the wrongs that have ever been done by all human beings will be punished. And this is what we have to understand. Every sin done by all of us, every failure in terms of horizontal righteousness that we have been guilty of, all of them will be punished. God is just and He must punish sin. But here, here's the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to take that punishment for us. Jesus came into the world to bear the wrath of God so that all who trust in Him and rely upon Him alone will be saved from the wrath to come. All sins you've ever committed will be punished. Here are your choice. You either get punished for them on judgment day or you follow Christ and realize that He was punished for them on Calvary. That's the good news of the Christian faith. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, that is the one great need we all have. We all need forgiveness. We all need somehow for the wrath of God that's over our sin to be taken away, to be satisfied, to be appeased so that we don't have to face it. And that's why Jesus came. And for that reason, those who trust in Christ with authentic faith, receive this promise. They will go away into eternal life. Eternal life. Not just 
eternal existence, but eternal life. Living, breathing, pulsating, vibrant, vital being, all in fellowship and relationship with the living God. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. This is eternal life. Not just endless existence, but endless existence in the presence of God. Not just endless existence, but endless existence in which and during which and throughout which we get to know God more and more, love Christ more and more. And Jesus says to us here in Matthew 25, if your faith is genuine and you truly love me, then you will, you will practice horizontal righteousness. And the day is going to come when I'm going to say, well done now. Welcome home into my eternal dwelling place where I live forever and my Father lives forever. Welcome in and welcome home to that land, to that place in which perfect righteousness and justice dwell. On that day, on that day, our, our vertical righteousness, relationship with God, perfect. No longer, no longer anything missing in our relationship with God. On that day, our internal righteousness, our character, who we are and how we behave will be perfected. And we will never sin again. And on that day, Horizontal righteousness, love, will go on forever and ever and ever. Not because need will go on forever and ever, because there won't be any hungry ones there, none thirsty, none in prison, none suffering hardship, none with a need that we have to somehow respond to. On that day, all tears will be wiped away. All sin will be gone. We will hunger no more. We will thirst never again. And we will dwell together in perfect love. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love because love will go on forever. This is the word of God. Each of us will stand before him on that day and give an account of our lives. May it be that the life of faith that results in righteousness will be the life that we have lived so that on that day our Savior will say, well done. You know, ultimately this text is about Jesus. He's the Son of Man who is going to come. 
He's going to come in all of his glory with all of his angels with him in mighty array and parade and procession. And he who is the glorious one will sit on a glorious throne from which he will reign forever and ever. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. But before you do, Lord Jesus, would you please give each and every one of us grace to make sure that we are prepared for that coming. Create in us, O Lord, a humble and reverent heart, a believing heart, a surrendered heart. Give us the gift of faith, O Lord, so that by grace alone, through faith alone, we might become yours alone. Prepare us for eternity. O Lord Jesus, I pray, through your mighty name, amen.